0: Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Samantha Truix. Samantha is the CEO of Waltham, Massachusetts-based Upstream Bio. Upstream came out of stealth mode with a $200 million Series A financing in June of 2022. It's a big investment in an antibody drug candidate aimed at the TSLP receptor. That's a cytokine receptor for an inflammatory protein that sits at the top of what scientists call an inflammatory cascade. The idea is that if you can inhibit TSLP, then it won't go on to trigger a whole bunch of other cytokines such as IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, 17, and more. And if you can keep the body from overproducing a wild storm of all those inflammatory proteins, then scientists think you might make a pretty big difference against a range of inflammatory diseases, including severe asthma. Upstream isn't the only company working on this target, of course. AstraZeneca won FDA approval in December of 2021 for an antibody aimed at the TSLP ligand. That drug, tezapelumab, is cleared for severe asthma. Upstream seeks to build on that success. Upstream's lead drug candidate, was in licensed from Astellas Pharma, has already been put through extensive preclinical testing and is being prepped for a phase 1b trial in severe asthma patients that's scheduled to begin before the end of 2022. This is a big opportunity from a commercial perspective and for patients. About 2 million people in the US have severe asthma and about 30 million worldwide. Samantha comes to this moment with a wide range of experiences, much of it in business development. She worked at a couple of the early pillars of the Boston biotech community, Genzyme and Biogen. She joined a startup, Padlock Therapeutics, that was acquired by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Her first stint as a startup CEO didn't end the way she and the investors hoped it would, but it was a learning experience that opened the door for what she's doing now. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now, please join me and Samantha Truix on the long run. Sam Truix, welcome to The Long Run. Thanks for having me, Luke. So, Sam, I appreciate that uh, you are a longtime listener of this show. Uh, you've been on my list as a potential guest for some time, but uh, haven't really had occasion to uh, have you on the show because the timing wasn't right. So like now I'm glad that it finally is. So welcome.
1: Well, I certainly appreciate it. I have heard some amazing stories of impact on patient lives on your podcast, and I just feel privileged uh, to be among the people you're interviewing.
0: Great. So we're going to talk about your new company, Upstream Bio, and your work on asthma uh, and other inflammatory conditions uh, as we move on. But uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, Where does your story begin?
1: Well, thanks for asking. I I always love listening to this part of other uh, people's stories. So I'll share that uh, my story begins in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was born long ago uh, as the youngest of a large Irish Catholic family. And I grew up in Michigan all the way through high school uh, and then made my way to New Hampshire for college and stayed in the East thereafter.
0: You say youngest. How big was this family?
1: pretty big eight uh, eight uh, kids in the family and spanning 19 years so I have uh, you know sisters and brothers quite a bit older than I am and we're all very tight-knit family and it was a great way to grow up actually I, that I really is an parents. Irish
0: Catholic that really oh, yeah. is an Irish Catholic family
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> okay. So um you uh, obviously this is this is a big group of people and lots of different stages of life. You got siblings doing all lots of different things. Um what kind of schools did you attend?
1: Yeah, so early on I I went to public school in the same towns that uh, my siblings grew up in and then when I was in fourth grade, entering fourth grade, we moved to Dearborn, Michigan, where my father worked for Ford Motor Company for his whole career, and then I entered parochial school. So I went to a Catholic school from fourth through twelfth grade, and um, I, I will say that I feel fortunate to have grown up in a family where my parents really valued education. What you know, one of the strongest values I gained growing up was to place. Um, a, a high uh, priority on education and to work hard and, you know, to sh- to share the gifts we're privileged to have with other people who don't have as much privilege. Those yeah. are some things I was taught by my parents early on that I try to live by.
0: Well, and, um, and what was that school environment like uh, from four through 12? Uh, was it pretty uh, competitive and rigorous?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I would say at the time I thought it was, and I was a I was a pretty hardworking sort of type A, you know, good student. Uh, when I got to college, I realized that there wasn't nearly as much opportunity at the high school I went to as I thought while I was in high school, um, and I, I guess I say that because, for instance. I found out when I got to college that there were a lot of students at my college who had already placed out of a lot of things I needed to take. And I I couldn't have done that because there, I didn't have those opportunities in the school I went to, but I was able to take advantage of quite a bit there. And um, I think over the long run, it has served me well and, uh, and was a, a good environment in which to go to school.
0: Did you get much exposure to science and medicine in those high school years?
1: i I did to some extent, and I will say I always appreciate uh, when others you've interviewed talk about the people who influenced them and um, impacted the course of their lives. I didn't have nearly as much exposure to the sciences as maybe. Um, some other people who've made their uh, careers in the life sciences. And I certainly didn't have anyone in my family who was an example of going into medicine or life sciences at all. But I did have, in particular, an eighth grade science teacher and then a freshman year in college physics teacher who really um, made an impression on me and made science seem exciting and fun and piqued my interest and curiosity. So I do credit those educators with keeping me interested in the sciences. Um, And then a few professors in the engineering school at Dartmouth, which is where I went to college, who um, introduced to me that you could put the life sciences together with engineering, which I had no idea about as a younger person. And that's how I made my way into a a career in the life sciences.
0: I'm so glad to hear that you've got... Someone who taught you that science could be fun. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was just at an event yesterday with uh, Tony Fauci here in Seattle, and he was uh, uh, receiving an award. And uh, he met with some high school students who were summer interns uh, at the lab, and uh, you know they all lit up being around this famous scientist. And uh, his host, uh, Larry Corey, was asking them, the students, you know, what they were learning during their summer internship. And he said, I hope that someone is, has told you that like science is fun. <laughs> and, and there were like lots of laughs and nods. Yes, it, it actually is. It's a great, it's a, a way of learning. And not every kid gets that.
1: I I agree. And I always, uh, again, in the spirit of those values I gained growing up about, um, you know, taking time to share your gifts with others. I, I view even the exposure to this industry as a gift. And I've always tried to answer the call of younger people, whether it's being asked to speak in a middle school, which I have done before. And I was just asked to do again last week, uh, which is now scheduled for the coming school year, you know, to um, answering the call of uh, current students and alums of my alma mater about, you know, what's this biotech industry. I always try to help Um, pave the way for those people because I know I knew nothing about this industry and I didn't really have any good ways of learning about it when I was an undergrad. So I try to, I try to offer that to anybody who asks.
0: Yeah, that's great. So you you must've done pretty well. You end up going to Dartmouth Uh, and um, how did, um, what what did you decide to uh, focus on there or make your major?
1: (laughs) yeah, it changed over time. I got there thinking I was going to study engineering, and my concept of engineering was automotive engineering because of the environment in which I grew up. And literally every person in my family worked for Ford Motor Company for at least some period of time, including myself as a summer intern. So I didn't know anything under other than that. But I was pretty good at math and science. So I started off doing all the prerequisites. I declared myself an engineering major and I got into the middle of my sophomore year and said, Why am I doing this? I don't even want to work in the automotive industry. I changed my major to biology. But as I said, eventually I realized that there were courses in the engineering school at that time that combined life sciences with engineering, including an introduction to biotechnology. Um, a biomaterials course, and I also did an independent study in the physics of medical imaging. Fortunately, today, there are far more courses in life sciences at that school than there were when I was there. But at least those few courses got me to realize I could put these things together. So, I added uh, essentially a minor in engineering, which is really unusual because most people don't do all the prerequisites, just a minor in engineering. But by the time I came to that conclusion, I was almost done with college. So I got a bachelor of of, uh, arts in biology modified with engineering. And then I stayed for a fifth year and got another bachelor's degree specifically in engineering. And I spent that entire year only in engineering courses.
0: Now, were, what were you thinking you might do with this? Because when you talk about biology and engineering, I'm going to get a lot of people probably think medical devices and instruments, not so much biotechnology in the way you know most of us speak about it today.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I'd love to say that I had this nicely laid out path, but I didn't. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And the biotech industry was not really recruiting openly or heavily at the time. So I just knew I liked it and I didn't really know where I was going to go with it. And frankly, I applied to business school and partly that was just because my father went to business school after engineering school and it worked out for him. So I thought I would try that path and I liked school. So... I did go to business school right away, which was rather unusual. And it was in business school that I started um, really exploring companies I could go to. But even then, it was just a little bit too early uh, for recruiting at business schools by biopharma companies. Genentech and Genzyme and companies like that started recruiting at business schools, you know, Right after, maybe in the couple of years after I graduated. I got out of business school in ninety-five. So I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I feel very lucky that I found through serendipity a path. To uh, working in consulting at a firm that still exists today called Health Advances, which was focused completely on life science clients. And that's what I did right out of business school in 95 for a couple of years. And I got introduced to a bunch of different types of clients and a bunch of different types of questions that faced them. From reimbursement questions to how big is the market to what type of product could we make out of a polymer? And I did, you know, I did projects in devices, diagnostics, and therapeutics in those couple of years at Health Advances. It was a great way to start a career.
0: Okay, so that's a pretty typical uh, consulting experience. Now, you had gone to business school um, at the Tuck School at Dartmouth. That's um, Now, was Health Advances your first move to, was this the Boston, Cambridge area?
1: Yes, that's correct. So I lived in Hanover, New Hampshire for seven years of school, and then I came to, uh, to Boston.
0: Okay, so you get exposed to this whole variety of different companies and different industries, and each has their own specific problems. And it sounds like I, you're figuring out at this point what you wanted to do.
1: Absolutely. And like I said, that was a great way to do it because I, I learned a lot about the types of clients they served and the types of questions they were facing. And after a couple of years, I realized I really enjoyed the work I was doing, but I wanted to be more fundamentally involved. Most of those projects were sort of eight to 12 week projects. And then you work intensely on something and then put it down and pick up the next thing. And so I decided I wanted to leave consulting and try to go work for one of the companies like the clients I was working for. I ended up going to work for Chiron Um, which of course later was acquired by Novartis. And Chiron had a diagnostics division that at least partially was in Massachusetts. Not a lot of people know about that. I went there and I only stayed there for about 15 months because it was my first business development role. And in that role, I helped them sell the division to Bear. So it was the first time in my business development career that I sold myself out of a job, which is, you know, (laughs) kind of a reality of that kind of that role
0: yeah yeah what was it about business development that attracted you
1: well once again I'm going to be completely candid and tell you I didn't know what business development was I knew I wanted a job in one of the um, in one of the large biopharma companies and when I was offered one based on my uh, background I thought, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I think I can figure it out when I get there. (laughs) And sure enough, I worked for a good group of people who um, gave me some good training. And it was, you know, everything from um, licensing transactions to paying attention to how things were going with uh, collaborations that already existed to then, uh, of course, thinking about uh, spinning out this business and selling it off. And so... um, after learning what it was, I really liked it and can have continued to like that kind of role because it involves having to learn about every function there is in developing a drug or in that case, a diagnostic and knowing enough about it to ask good questions across all the functions, whether it be research, development, commercial, intellectual property, manufacturing. And so, I just got exposed to so many different aspects of the business and got to interact with so many people with experience across all those functions that I just found it fascinating and wanted to stay in that kind of role.
0: Yeah, it's the kind of role that um, forces you to, um, forces a clarity of thinking um, and a clarity of communication about um w- what it is that um, you're trying to accomplish um and how it can help each person on each side.
1: I, I think that's right. And, and it allowed me to pull in the good communication skills i I learned, although I studied engineering, I did it in the setting of a liberal arts education where, um, you know, there was a lot of pride in communication. And then, Starting my career in consulting helped even more with that because that's a great place to hone your skills on how to get right to the point and communicate in a pithy way what you're trying to get across. So that served me very well uh, at the early stages of the career. And then I worked with a great team and learned quite a bit from that uh, team at Chiron, even in such a short time frame. And then I really liked Chiron and I considered going to work for the headquarters of Chiron, but decided I really didn't want to move to the Bay Area. So I interviewed with and had offers from both Biogen and Genzyme. And at that time, Genzyme was doing a lot more business development than Biogen. That was in 98. And that's when I joined Biogen, uh, sorry, Genzyme, where I went for eight years and then Biogen after that for eight years.
0: Yeah, there's a symmetry there. Uh, eight years at the two, uh, in those days, the kind of the twin pillars of the Boston biotech community. And Chiron was one of the first generation biotech companies on the West Coast, um, Absolutely. As, as, as you say. So um, without you know spending too much time on each of those uh, companies, Genzyme and Biogen, I mean, those are formative experiences. Lots of uh, successful people have come through there. What do you think were was like one important thing that you learned uh, that you picked up from your time at each of those companies?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, at At Genzyme, I had the opportunity to work in business development cr- across both corporate development and a number of the businesses of Genzyme, and I think I learned there that. One needs to be willing in a risky business like life sciences to take risks in order to build a business. And I say that because that that business was built on bringing things in from the outside and putting them together in opportunistic ways, not necessarily with some long-term 10-year strategy, but with an eye toward opportunities that seemed like they could create value for patients, and that if they did, they would create value for shareholders. And I had plenty of opportunities to even be in meetings discussing these kinds of opportunities, where the CEO Henry Tamir was present. And I think he was a great example Of understanding that there are risks and being willing to take them while stating and embracing, yes, we are taking this risk and we're going to go for it. And I say that because that stood in stark contrast to what I experienced when I first got to Biogen, which had a very different attitude toward risk when I first arrived there. And it was quite a learning experience to move from one culture to the next.
0: What was the difference? Was it just more? Cautious and risk averse.
1: Absolutely, it was more of a um, let's lay out on paper and in a spreadsheet and a financial model proof that any deal we're going to do will be accretive. Oh. Well, <laughs> y- you know, you you can't prove you you, you can do a thirty. 30- Tab Excel spreadsheet with all kinds of depth and precision and show that something can be accretive, but it's all based on assumptions. And anybody who's been around this business for at least a couple of years or, or more knows that these are all just assumptions and you can make a business opportunity look very nice just by tweaking some assumptions. And so I think in my mind, what I found is a Um, healthy embracing of the idea that there are some risks worth taking and some where all the risks mount up to a big red flag and you don't do that deal. But that if you don't do any deals because they seem risky, you're never going to grow your business. And so eventually we did get to do some deals. But when I first joined Biogen, it just felt like a very risk averse, the status quo is better than any deal we could possibly do because they all involve risk type of, um, culture.
0: Okay. So you're there. That doesn't sound like the greatest place to be doing business development, uh, <laughs> because <laughs> right. like you, you naturally are like as a mid-sized biotech in those days, I mean, you had opportunity to work with a lot of small companies and I'm sure you saw lots of interesting science and management teams.
1: I did. Yet the other reality of Biogen when I arrived there and actually the reason I was even hired is that I went there in 2006 and it was right after Tysabri was pulled from the market soon oh, after yeah. it launched. And while in you know in, in retrospect we can all look back and know that it was only off the market for about a year and it was a, a heroic effort by many very impressive people and scientists and MDs at Biogen who did a great job investigating, understanding um, the issues at play there and then relaunching the drug for the benefit of many, many patients. So I applaud Biogen for that. They needed to find other sources of growth at the time I was hired, because no one knew if Ty Sabri would ever be reintroduced. And that had been the major source of growth on which they were relying um to 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 sell the vision to shareholders. So they rejiggered the corporate development group at that time. They hired a number of new people, including me, to look at all kinds of opportunities beyond neurology. And so, While I did describe the kind of culture I entered, nevertheless, deals were done and lots of deals were assessed out of necessity because there needed to be growth drivers introduced since no one knew what would happen to Ty Savory. And indeed, there were a number of deals we looked at. Some of them we got very far along on. Um, And then one that we did that, that introduced a new wrinkle in my career was acquiring a small company called Syntonics for its technology that allowed uh, longer acting uh, factors for hemophilia patients. And after that transaction, which I was involved in, I had the opportunity to go become the program lead for those programs and lead the collaboration they were already part of. So that was a new path in my career. It was a new role, but it also involved, just like business development, having to understand at least a little bit about all the different functions that contribute to a d- drug development program. So in some ways it was like business development, but in a much deeper and longer term type of, um, picture of the business that we were trying to develop.
0: Okay. Okay. So, um, th- it's sort of like, uh, business development, you, um, you, you have to be, um, aware of a lot of different projects, a, a wide radar screen. But this is now like you're going a little deeper down the rabbit hole <laughs> as a Absolutely. program. Absolutely.
1: Instead of just doing diligence on something and learning enough to help make the decision and the recommendation as to whether a deal should be done, now it's okay, play all these functions out and lead the cross-functional team that drives toward um, the approval and commercial success of a drug as sort of a general manager. And that was a great, I learned a ton and also learned from a lot of great people that were involved in those programs.
0: So how did you end up transitioning from, you know, these uh, sizable, you know, respectable, uh, large biotech companies to uh, the scrappy startup world?
1: Yeah. Thanks for asking that. That's that's kind of a fun situation where over the course of my career at Biogen, where I did transition from business development to leading drug programs back, back and forth a couple of times. And in all the times I was in uh, external facing business development, I looked at for um, potential acquisition purposes, lots of venture-backed startups And I started to get to know some of the investors, and I also started to really get to know what the profiles of people leading those companies looked like. So there were a few times while I was at Biogen that I was approached by investors to join companies, and I thought about it, but it wasn't until 2014, after I had looked at many, many companies in the gene therapy space that was really starting to heat up at that time, I realized a lot of those people in leadership at those companies were at stages of their careers that were about the same as mine, or in some cases, not even as far along as mine. And I thought, okay, if I'm gonna make this change, maybe this is a good time to do it. Um, And I was also inspired by the person who was my boss at that time, Steve Holtzman, uh, and, and George Skangos even, who was the CEO then of Biogen, They had come from being leaders in smaller companies, even from the stages of them being venture-backed private companies. And so they had kind of instilled a a fun and um, scrappy culture at Biogen. And I thought, maybe I could go be part of a company like that. So I left Biogen, or at least announced to my boss, Steve, I was going to leave before I even knew where I was going to go. Uh, which was scary, but I also knew that he was so no- well networked that as soon as I started looking for a job, he'd probably hear about it. So I decided to just tell him, I want to look for a job in a startup. And he was extremely gracious and helped me. So I met in 2014 with lots of Boston area investors, talked to lots and lots of companies. I had a ball doing that. And I ended up in a wonderful position becoming the chief business officer for Padlock, where Mike Gilman, who I had already known and worked with at Biogen, uh, was the CEO.
0: Yeah, yeah. What was it about Padlock that uh, drew you in?
1: It was a combination of things. I definitely wanted to be inspired by the science and the fundamental impact that um, the endeavor could have for patients. And really importantly, I wanted to go work In a place where i could learn from a ceo who already knew how to lead a company and mike had already been the ceo prior to that of stromedics uh, and he was actually very good at and being a mentor at interacting with board members and investors and then also very importantly I had a lot of experience by then in in business development all on the buy side of course not you know not on the small company sell side but I had already been in industry for 19 years by then and I didn't want to go work for a CEO who was also like you know a deal person where I would end up just doing whatever that person told me without really feeling like I had a seat at the table so going to work with Mike was really an opportunity to have a seat at the table and feel like a partner. He told me in the interview that he he said, I know something about business, but it's not my first language. It's like, it's, it's like, it's my second language. And I want to partner with somebody who speaks business as their first language. And he truly did empower me. And we had a great relationship in um, what was a very successful company. And I think that it was due to all the people who are there and not to any one person.
0: Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare, Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or a bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com that was uh, a pretty whirlwind ride. Um, it was acquired by Bristol Myers Squibb, I think in a couple of years. Uh, yeah, actually right. can, I, I, there was actually, uh, for listeners, I will, uh include a link to the backstory on this one, which, um, one of my contributing writers, Vic Goyal, um, interviewed you about, uh, to go in depth on the padlock story. Um, but, um, So there you were at the end of this, uh, you know, your first go round as a chief business officer in a startup and it's a big success. Uh, then what comes next?
1: Well, I explored a number of different possible paths thereafter, and I actually consulted to a few companies. I spent a few months actually full-time consulting to what was then Kyn, K-Y-N, which later became Ikena Oncology, led by Mark Manfredi. And... I was working with that company, potentially um, considering, and them considering me, becoming the CEO uh, of the company, and I really enjoyed um, working with Mark Manfredi. I have huge respect for him, now the longtime CEO there, and for various reasons, I decided that was maybe not the right fit for a first-time CEO gig for me, and I um, was attracted to do um take on a different kind of role at a company that was more established in logic where i became the coo and head of corporate development and at that company i um i joined at a time that was a bit unfortunate in that the market um meaning the investment market tanked right after i joined there partially based on political considerations in our country and I eventually helped um, SynLogic go through a reverse merger as a way to raise its next round of funding at a time that was more, more challenging than the year before it and the few years that came after it. And so that was a great learning experience. And for various reasons, uh, partly family demands and partly just um, wanting to be in a, in a, uh, pursuing a different kind of therapeutic, I didn't stay there after the reverse merger, and I ended up consulting to a bunch of companies until I um, had the opportunity to become the CEO of Quench Bio in uh, mid 2018. That didn't come out of stealth until much later, so a lot of people don't know that Quench was actually operating for quite a while.
0: Yeah, Quench was one of the Atlas Venture portfolio companies, um, and. So was Padlock, I believe. Um, yes. So, so by this and point, and you know, logic,
1: all of them were
0: right. So you're you've developed a relationship with the investors. They you know each other, um, and uh, Quench um, uh, becomes your next project. Now, without going into too much of the the chapter and verse on this one, uh, that that didn't work out. Um, and you know, this way, a lot of startups go. Most things fail. It's biotech, but there are different ways, uh, in which people do it. <laughs> there, you can fail fast and fail cheap and with your dignity intact. And then there are other kinds that, you know, are not so elegant. <laughs> um, you guys, you, um, you handled, the, how did you, how did you handle this when it became clear to you that, um, this was just not going to work out?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking that. And a a lot of people have asked that. I was quite surprised, to be honest with you, that there was a lot of attention um, gained by our handling of that story. And I I guess I'm glad that that's the case now, though I, I was surprised that it was that rare. And just a little bit of background is that company started with the license of technology from a European research institution, and it was supposed to be chemical matter that was already in lead op. And it took us about a a year from mid-2018 to mid-2019, all during stealth mode that most people don't know about, to realize that the chemical matter we had was not actually Operating through the target as had been hypothesized, so we reinvented ourselves as Quench before we even came out of stealth, and so I just give that as background because we had already gone through a an an unfortunate realization that what we were working on hadn't worked, and we had still pivoted and sort of reinvented ourselves to with the full backing of our investors who said. Well, that chemical matter didn't work, but we all think this is a great target and we should keep trying because it has a real possibility to have great impact for patients.
0: Wait a second, Sam, this sounds like really something. So this was um, supposed to be a small molecule in lead optimization. So not only does it, it's supposed to bind with the target, but it's an optimized molecule. And you're saying it didn't even bind with the intended target?
1: Well, I I will tell you that first of all, we never believed it was really in lead up. We kind of gave that a haircut before we even did the deal, <laughs> so we knew it wasn't exactly in lead up. But we also um, we, we also did a number of things to test the um, the hypothesis that it did bind. And actually, I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail, but we we did have confirmation that was binding. We just later came to the conclusion that this chemical matter was actually involved in polypharmacology and was not primarily acting through Dermin, the intended target. And so could not could not be optimized. But we had learned enough about the target, um, both the excitement of its biology and the possible ways to drug it, that we and our investors agreed it was worth going back to the drawing board. and. Conducting some screening to look for targets, and we did that twice. Meaning, we we did some initial screens, didn't find anything. Still thought the target was really impressive, and at that time, and this brings us to how we made the decision. And I think very um, very easily um, in the end that it it was time to wind down because. That was March, 2021, when we decided it was time to wind down. At the beginning of 2020, we laid out a plan to to follow five different paths with different technologies that were complementary to each other to screen for chemical matter to try to inhibit gas dermin. And I worked with our leadership in R&D, all of whom are very experienced, and said, we need to decide now what are all the things to invest in. Do it all in parallel and agree that our goals are we need to get to hit to lead by the end of March of 2021. And if we don't get there, that's it. We already embarked on and pursued all the good ideas. And if we don't, we're not going to keep this going as a pet project. And because we had all agreed on that in advance and laid out those goals, it wasn't a difficult conversation at the end. It was sad. And we kind of knew it was coming as Q1 of 2021, you know, um, unfolded because various series we were pursuing fell away and fell away. And we were literally down to like five compounds waiting to see if they worked. And when they didn't, everybody knew what it meant. You know, it was not a difficult or awkward conversation because we had all already agreed. Okay. Our, Our investors were so happy with the, I don't know if happy is the right word, but they they were pleased with the discipline with which we had pursued the science and with the scientists and their acumen that they wanted to keep funding us. And they asked us to go pick some other targets and screen them. But we decided we didn't really have anything to differentiate ourselves from literally anybody else who could screen against those targets. And we declined to build a business that way and return and that, money to investors.
0: Right, right. So, and, and that is a more, a, a common um, path that companies go down. Well, you know, if they say something, if you realize something doesn't work, um, you can say, well, you know, we've got these other you know candidates, uh, uh, back burner that we can, you know, revive or try and, you know, we'll take our limited cash and, and apply it this way. Instead, you said, you know what, the, I mean, as you said, you had a plan in advance. It was disciplined. And uh, when it didn't pan out, it was okay. Well, let's we'll auction off our equipment. Uh, we'll help uh, the employees find other jobs, uh, return cash to investors, and we'll all, you know, find something else to do. Uh, with our <laughs> precious time as as drug developers,
1: absolutely, and and actually. I give a lot of credit to the scientists because I I had learned something that kind of bothered me over time, which was that we were looking at another program to potentially license in and we didn't license it. But over that time, I learned that there had been a bunch of crystal structures involved in that project that were never published and they were never published because they weren't that they were, you know, of, of one isotype and another had already been published. So they weren't exciting enough to publish, but they could have helped pave the way for drug development. So then if we come back to quench, we had made some quite good advances on crystal structures um, far beyond what had been published. And we decided even if we are not going to continue pursuing drug development against this target, somebody else might. And our crystal structures might help them eventually serve patients. And so then we said, well, maybe we should publish these. And we did something creative, which was we said, OK, eventually we'll uh, uh, make them available to the public. But in the meantime, maybe we can do something good for others. And we didn't think there was enough value there to return money to shareholders. But we asked permission of our shareholders to auction off the rights to have a year of exclusive access to those crystal structures and everything else we had learned confidentially about the target. Um in an auction to raise money for life science cares. And that was unusual. And we were really proud that we um, succeeded in getting quite a bit of money to life science cares for that. Um, that those assets.
0: That's great. And for those who aren't familiar, life science cares is a organization that uh, you, know, you and I both support that um, mobilizes the biotech community to uh, give back to the wider community. Um, and, and, Uh, alleviate poverty through multiple ways, Uh, job training, education, um, and, uh, and, and relief. Um, so, okay. Um, so quench winds down and it's 2021. You are now a free agent again. Uh, this leads you to upstream bio where you are now. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what was, what was the opportunity here? And what about it excited you?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. So but after all the time spent at Quench Bio, and I, I just described what that was like, I realized I really wanted to get back to working on a clinical stage program. And i that's what I had done for most of my time in Genzyme and Biogen, either looking at clinical stage programs to bring in as a business development person or leading drug program teams for clinical stage programs. So I was completely and solely focused on how can I find an asset around which to build a clinical stage company? And at first I was focused on doing that with Atlas Venture and I have great respect for that group and would work with them again, anytime. Uh, And so we started down that path, but then I was approached by another investor who said, we've learned that you're looking for a clinical stage opportunity, we are about to close a deal on a very high quality clinical stage asset. We've pulled together a syndicate of investors and we're looking for a CEO. And, you know, I did my diligence. I couldn't turn it down. And I feel very privileged to now be leading this company where the investors put in two hundred million dollars so that we could both pay for the auctioned off asset, which is already in, had already been in the clinic already had phase 1a data, and now take it into the next stage, which we actually announced yesterday um, has started, which is a multiple ascending dose study in asthma patients for our monoclonal antibody targeting the T-slip receptor.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit about this program itself. Um, What is it? Where does it come from? What's the therapeutic hypothesis.
1: Yeah, thanks for all that. So it's a monoclonal antibody. It comes from Estellus, which deprioritized it and a number of other programs all at the same time when they exited inflammation. Uh, They had already taken this monoclonal antibody into a single ascending dose study and healthy volunteers in the US under an IND. And so they had already shown nice safety and pk data and we were also able to mine some of the data they had for interesting pd data and so um it is targeting like i said the t-slip receptor so t-slip or tslp is thymic stromal lymphopoietin it is an alarmin which uh, which is a class of cytokines that are upstream so at the top of the inflammatory cascade in a number of inflammatory diseases, including severe asthma and a number of other um, indications we're potentially pursuing. We are starting with asthma and there is clinical validation of this uh, target. Unlike the one I pursued for years uh, with the team at Quench, this one's highly validated in that the signaling pathway of T SLIP has already been drugged by Amgen and AstraZeneca in the form of Tezepelumab, their monoclonal that targets the T SLIP ligand. That was approved at the end of last year, has already launched into asthma, and is really doing quite well in terms of being prescribed already.
0: Let's come back just a little bit on the biology here. So the T SLIP receptor, TSLP, it, um, it, it it it's uh, it, it's involved in this production of this cytokine, an inflammatory protein, that triggers further downstream signaling and production of other cytokines like IL four, IL five, IL thirteen, maybe some more. So it, this is why you think it's important to to target it, as you say, upstream. Uh, to kind of prevent the you know, excessive proliferation of all these other inflammatory proteins that come later?
1: Absolutely. And I'll come back to, uh, you, you said maybe some more after listing some cytokines, and that's an important piece. So all of those cytokines you listed have already been drugged. There are already approved drugs making a big difference for patients out there that target those cytokines you listed and that target IgE. And all of those are approved for asthma, and some of them are approved for other indications as well. All of those are T2 driven inflammation, so type 2 or Th2 cell driven cytokine um, uh, driven inflammation. In asthma and in other diseases, there's also non type 2 driven inflammation. And so that's where you say, and some others. There's IL 17. There are neutrophils at play as opposed to eosinophils in the type 2-driven arena. And TSLP or T-slip is at at the top of an inflammatory cascade that is as broad as crossing both type 2 and non-type 2-driven disease and even potentially plays a role in fibrosis, which is the longer-term manifestation of this uh, inflammation that's insidious and over time leads to fibrosis. So the therapeutic hypothesis is that by inhibiting at this upstream node, all of those pathways are impacted and are inhibited from causing the downstream inflammation and eventual fibrosis. So that's the thesis here. And tezepelumab from Amgen and AstraZeneca has already shown, at least in studies in asthma, that this holds true and that they do have impact in patients both with type two-driven and non-type two-driven disease. We have a program that targets the receptor and at least in the preclinical setting, we already have data to show that the antibody we have is quite potent, quite a bit more potent than tezapelumab. And we have hypotheses on how we can differentiate even from tezapelumab, in the clinical setting, and we'll be testing those hypotheses in our clinical studies.
0: So it's a monoclonal antibody against a cell surface receptor. It should be very specific to that target, um, and as you say, potent. Now, this if you have greater potency, what does that enable in terms of uh, a different product profile, potentially?
1: It could enable, but needs to be tested, uh, better efficacy. Now, the drugs that are out there are pretty effective. I would never be heard to be saying anything negative about other drugs that are approved in helping patients. We as a society and the patients who have these uh, diseases are lucky to have those drugs, and we're hoping we can provide something that's even better. So... That's what we'll be looking for in the clinic, and we will be data-driven about making any claims to those to that effect.
0: Now, since all of these cytokines are implicated in multiple inflammatory conditions, uh, you've got a lot of choices on a clinical development um, strategy. What do you prioritize? What comes first? You mentioned severe asthma. Why uh, Why start there? We're starting
1: in asthma, um, uh, mainly because that's one of the areas with the highest unmet need. And it's also the first path that was taken by Tezipelemab. So frankly, in the eyes of investors who need to put a lot of money to work, because these are very aggressive programs and competitive spaces, it is... Um, sensible to go after the most de-risked path. And so we are already conducting the multiple ascending dose study in patients who have asthma. That's already started. We also have spent an enormous amount of time in the last six months assessing the many other indications where there are published data to show that the T-slip signaling pathway plays an important role There are a lot of those indications, and we are now coming to a recommendation on the clinical paths that we'll invest in and even indications that could be de-risked by the ones we plan to invest in. So we've laid out an entire lifecycle management plan, which we're not yet sharing in the non-confidential setting, but that we think will be compelling both to our current investors and to future investors and potentially to partners down the road.
0: Well, so this is a product. Um, I don't want to use a cliche, but you know, that could have a pipeline that goes with it. Uh, you, you start with a lead indication because you just have to to focus somewhere um as a company. Severe asthma, as you say, big unmet needs, something like I think you said before, two million severe asthma patients in the US uh, alone, yes. and, and many more worldwide.
1: That's correct. Absolutely correct. And There are a number of um, data sources suggesting that while biologics have been um, quite successful, especially in patients with type 2 uh, driven disease, at helping them control their asthma, the penetration of the biologics eligible population is quite small. There are uh, numbers ranging from 20 to 25%. So there's still enormous room for providing drug to patients who need it if we can just break through and penetrate that market. And so and this we, is, think we can provide a drug to do that.
0: And how is it administered?
1: This drug will be subcutaneous. It's already being used subcutaneously in the current study, and that is the planned uh, format for commercialization.
0: Okay. So that's something a patient can easily give to him or herself at home. Um, and uh, well, preferably, you know, not every day of the week, but, you know, through some interval that, you know, fits with their life. Uh,
1: agreed. And I spent a good chunk of um, my time earlier in my career focused on hemophilia with a value proposition of creating a drug that could be taken less frequently. And so I understand well how even taking a medication that's efficacious can be disruptive to one's life and so you're you're exactly right the goal at commercialization would be to provide a um, formulation and format that is not disruptive to the patients who need it and so that's uh, what we're aiming for
0: well I asked that in part because um, you know I think maybe your experience at a larger company where you um, you did have products that further along in development or on the market um, you had to think about these commercial considerations very carefully Um, and not every startup at the early stage necessarily does because there's so many other things to think about with your science and manufacturing and everything else.
1: That's a great point. And that comes to the philosophy I've taken in building the team we have here, We've built a team of people who are extremely experienced in every one of the important functions, even including commercial strategy and thinking about building a compelling story for payers, all the way from this early stage. And we're doing that because I learned along the way, especially in the buy side of business development, looking at a lot of startups that you really need to plan well beyond just the first clinical study. And you need to have a strategy for meeting a target product profile that will be compelling to clinicians, to patients and to payers. And that involves all kinds of considerations, including the ones we just talked about. So we're already putting together an integrated development plan based on a target product profile that ought to be compelling in what is admittedly a pretty competitive space
0: and your phase one trial that you just um launched uh it looks like it's placebo controlled and multiple ascending doses so you're you're running a hard study here to uh to get a good read on on what you have
1: yes it's a it's a multiple ascending dose study that is is not huge in size it's not um powered for particular endpoints, but it is um, very likely to be able to show compelling impact and compelling PK and pharmacodynamic profiles that if we are able to demonstrate what we're expecting to demonstrate will lead to us launching phase two trials, likely in multiple indications next year.
0: Okay. And as you mentioned, you raised a, a lot of money, $200 million for the Series A financing. Uh, I think that w- arrived just before the downturn really turned hard on people here in 2022. Um, so how are you spending most of that money and, and have you had to make any adjustments these uh, last few months?
1: I feel very fortunate to say we have not had to make adjustments. The, we we closed the round of funding and the acquisition of the asset in October of 2021 uh, bef- before the full downturn. We have very committed investors. They're very experienced investors, and they have a lot of capacity. So we are spending the money as exactly as we had expected, although well, I say exactly, but maybe a little bit more on each thing than expected because of inflation. But we we spent some of the money, of course, to acquire the program. And now we're spending it on executing. Mostly we're spending it on clinical development and manufacturing. And we are very fortunate to have a solid runway so that we can come up with a plan and a strategy for when and how we raise the next money.
0: Okay. Okay. How many people do you have uh, at the company now?
1: We're uh, just about um, 15, and we have many open positions in a number of functions, mainly in the development functions. And we would love to hear from people who would like to join a nice, um, exciting, and innovative company with a very good set of financial backers. And, uh, you know, who want to work hard to bring a drug to patients.
0: Nicely done. Plug there for uh, hiring. (laughs) Um, But I'm curious, though, you you mentioned earlier that um, you've hired some really experienced people already. What do you look for in candidates, especially at this very early stage of a company with just 15 people?
1: Yeah. Thanks for asking. Well, of course, in each function, we're looking for deep experience um, and nimbleness in the function. So from our chief medical officer and head of R&D to our head of technical operations, we really want people who've been around the block, so to speak, and are able to operate independently and also who are excited about operating in a small, scrappy company. And that can mean doing everything you know, wearing a lot of hats and also being in charge of activities that maybe somebody three levels junior to them was doing six months ago, but now they're in a company where there isn't anybody three levels junior to them and they have to do it themselves. And that's what small company life is like. So we're looking for people who are embracing that kind of situation and who are excited to be in a setting where we can all literally turn around in our chairs and make existentially important decisions without having to go through three committees and, uh, you know, who want to work hard to drive toward patient outcomes.
0: It's the proverbial, uh, there's a jam in the printer and, uh, you know, it's your problem to figure it out.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. All kinds (laughs) of things like that.
0: Okay. So uh, last thing before we wrap up, Sam. I mean, this is your second time now as a CEO. Um, What, um, you know, you obviously it's a different kind of job than you've had before. And, you know, there's no exact instruction manual for how to do it. (laughs) Um, What's one thing you've read lately that you found helpful as a leader of an organization or? or maybe a, a piece of advice that you've gotten?
1: That's interesting. I, I have to say, I have tried reading a number of things. And um, a lot of times books about leading organizations are are um, written by people who are professional writers <laughs> and not necessarily people who have led organizations. So I'll, I guess I'll highlight more that I feel really fortunate to be in an ecosystem of other biotech leaders who all want to help each other. And instead of naming one thing I've heard that's been helpful, I'll say that I've had the good fortune and privilege to every time I have a question and I'm thinking, how should we handle this? I have a network of other CEOs in the Boston area with whom I've become friendly over the past years who all want to help each other. And it's so gratifying and frankly, at times, even heartwarming to just know that everybody wants everybody else to succeed. Rarely is there a competitive spirit. It's all kind of a, we're in this together and good job. And we all know it's tough in the tough times. So I, I feel so fortunate to be in this ecosystem. Even if it is a small little 15 person company, I feel like I'm in a many thousands of people, ecosystem, who care about each other and all are driving toward good outcomes for patients.
0: I think that's a great point to uh, wrap up. Sam Truix, thanks for joining me on The Long Run.
1: Luke, thanks so much for having me, and I hope to get to hike with you again sometime soon.
0: Oh, for sure. We will do that. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Errol Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.